Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, May 4th, 2015. Yeah, I'm looking at the lineup for today and wondering what on earth was I thinking. (laughs) We are going to be all over the map. And yet there is a common thread in everything that we're going to be listening to today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We actually fact-check, if you would, biblically fact-check the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, authors, conference speakers, self-proclaimed, and that's the important uh, modifier there, self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses here at Fighting for the Faith to see if what they're teaching actually squares with what God's Word says in context when we use sound biblical exegesis and hermeneutics, or if what, well, the message that's being I should say messages being put out there by these folks is uh, is well it's man-made doctrines man-made traditions you know man-made ideas speculations and stuff that actually doesn't square with God's word so you've been warned a little bit uh, you know what I mean by that is uh, we're going to be all over the map today we we're from Heidi Baker to Eric Dykstra to uh, <laughs> Uh, to uh, Steve Muncy on uh, yeah Benny Hinn's program, to Adam Hushka. I mean, we are going to be all over the map, and and yet there's kind of a you know there there is really an actual thread that these are all kind of hanging on. But you'll have to see if you can figure that out. But uh, so here's what we're going to do today. I've kind of already hinted at. It. We're going to start today with a uh, Heidi Baker update and. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the best thing I can say is, is I have no idea what it is that is we're going to be listening to from her. It's it. Well, it's Heidi Baker is the best way I can put it. And uh, the, one of the reasons why we feature her, her here at Fighting for the Faith, and that's the thing, is, is that um, we feature her, her for a reason, actually several of them. Uh, but one of them is to warn people. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who really believe that what this woman is manifesting is God the Holy Spirit, and it's it's not. It's not God the Holy Spirit. This has nothing to do with God the Holy Spirit. 
Um, you know, what she's saying is just, and in fact, what she does, it's, uh, it's basically a, a spiritual smoke and light show. Uh, it, it's a theatrical production, if you would. Um, but this, these are not manifestations of God, the Holy Spirit. She is good at, uh, you know, looking pious and, oh, and oh, acting like she's, you know, Shabba. She's getting, you know, downloads and direct, you know, you know, electrical surges from God, the Holy Spirit, but she's not this, you know, so we feature her here as, as a way of kind of, you know, inoculating you, the listeners, but also to, you know, motivate some of you to sit down with your friends who really think this person is legit and warn them, you know, that the she is not. She is not legit. She does not rightly handle God's word. She is twisting God's word. She is leading people astray. Uh, the manifestations she claims are coming from God, the Holy Spirit, they are not, uh, which kind of leaves two um, options. The theatrics are caused either by her or the demonic. That's this. Those are the only, the only. There's no other way around it. I mean, she could be totally stark raving mad too. But uh, you know, anyway. So we have a Heidi Baker update. We have an Eric Dykstra update. Um, we're going to be listening to a part of his sermon entitled The Power of Words, uh, week four in the sermon series, The Power of Words. And uh, we're going to ask kind of the functional question is, what is the difference between this and um, our other option would be, you know, uh, witchcraft? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, like, you know, the bona fide, legitimate, you know, old school, you know, say the magic words and positive things or negative things will happen, you know, via spell and incantation. And I'm beginning to think that all these people are out there talking about the power of your words, Um, that in some senses, this is kind of like a magical witchcraft worldview that uh, we're dealing with here. So we'll take a listen to Eric Dykstra. Then uh, to end the uh, hour off, we're going to be listening to um, Steve Muncy. He recently appeared as the guest uh, host on uh, Benny Hinn's This Is Your Day television program. And we will be, uh, well, we're going to be implementing something new here at Fighting for the Faith. And that's the best way I can put it is it's a brand new feature that you know we've put in some super de duper really high tech technology here and uh it we're we're calling it our bovine scatology alarm yeah bovine scatology alarm uh, here's what it sounds like yeah it, really this is cutting edge technology here at fighting for the faith and uh, whenever we detect uh, bovine scatology, or at least the bovine scatology gets to a particular level, it'll prob- it'll like automatically trip the alarm here at uh, Fighting for the Faith, and uh, we'll you know we'll have to warn you that what it is that you're hearing, well, it's it's not true. Yeah, it's something totally different. Uh, and in other words, it's bovine scatology. But so that's what we'll, we, you know, we have this new technology that we'll be using from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith. And like I said, you know, it, it, it triggers after a particular level. And, you know, once the alarm is set off, I mean, it, it's a very helpful thing that we find here at Fighting for the Faith. So then in hour number two, um, we've reviewed a lot of Adam Hushka sermons here at Fighting for the Faith over the past few years, and we're going to be reviewing an, an, another Adam Hushka sermon, and uh, the topic is hell. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he's been working his way through a sermon series entitled Seriously. That's the name of the sermon series. It's, it wasn't me. That was him. You know, Seriously is the name of the uh, sermon series. And so the name of the sermon is Seriously Hell. And uh, Adam Hushka, in case you haven't noticed, is one of these guys that really doesn't like putting forward propositional truth statements or, you know, actually making assertions or anything like anything like that. His is more kind of a postmodern approach, if you would, to uh, discipling people, which I don't think is discipling at all. But uh, his postmodern approach is, you know, to have a conversation and, you know, to kind of put things out there for conversation. So with that, you've noticed this about Adam Hushka. Uh, in the sermons we've reviewed from him here at Fighting for the Faith. That being the case, do you have any confidence whatsoever that during this sermon where he's going to be talking about, you know, the the doctrine of hell, that the people there at Narrate Church in Helena, Montana, that they would get, you know, a biblical look at what Scripture says regarding Christ's return in glory to judge the living and the dead— and the eternal fires of hell and God's wrath. No, we're not going to get anything even closely re- remotely looking like that. Um, so you, this is what it sounds like when somebody who's postmodern is supposedly, you know, teaching something about Jesus and the faith and uh, talking about, uh, you know, that ever so difficult doctrine to preach and teach, and that is the doctrine of God's eternal wrath. So we'll see what Adam Hushka does with that. And uh, see if you can figure out the common theme between all of the different pieces. Because like I said, we are all over the map today. So with that, we're going to uh, dive into the program proper. And since we're going to start with a um, Heidi Baker update, that requires us to do this. So I was having this wedding and and we we, we didn't have, we had Shabbat. Mm, Shabbat Shunday. Yeah, there we go. That's our Heidi Baker update. Shabba. So uh, what we're going to be listening to is, um, if you would, it's kind of Heidi Baker's standard way of starting off her... um, her speaking engagements. Uh, she generally uh, finds find, you find her, you know, on her knees, or she'll be laying flat on the floor, or things like that. And uh, this is just like the uber creepy kind of stuff that we've heard from her before. But uh, I mean, when somebody is talking like this and do, carrying on like this, they're not actually teaching anything regarding the Christian faith. They're not modeling any of the true biblical manifestations of God, the Holy Spirit. And I am just befuddled as to why anybody would think that this is a legitimate manifestation of God the Holy Spirit. So uh, here's Heidi Baker. Here we go. And that's supposedly, you know, some kind of angelic prayer language, and it's not. That's not the manifestation of tongues. That's just turning your brain off and uh, putting your uh, your tongue into drive. 
You know, it's as if, you know, I, this is like the lead up to a song that I know. You, you may have heard this. I think you kind of get the idea. <laughs> I think that's what's going on here. I think she's leading up to that. I mean, don't you think? Yeah. Are we playing hide-and-seek? What is this? Free, ollie, ollie, oxen, free. Shabari ando, bare, babare. Let the children play today. Let the children play. So apparently this is a direct download from God the Holy Spirit. You know, and God the Holy Spirit saying, let the children play today. Ollie, ollie, oxen, free. Uh-huh. Today, let the children play today. Let the children play today. That means you who who it means you release the spirit of adoption. Uh, oh, they're releasing spirits there. Um yeah. I saw that happen in uh, in the first Indiana Jones movie, the yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark. They the Ark, you know, they they, they release spirits, and uh, it went very badly. You might want to cover your eyes and not look at them, otherwise your face could melt off. Please, the spirit of adoption, God, where we don't have to steal and cry and connive and try to be somebody. Oh, release the spirit of adoption, God. Release the spirit of adoption, God, where we can be your children. We can play. We can... No joke. The the place where this is taking place, everybody is like up on their feet, waving their hands up in the air. There's a whole bunch of people kind of like creating it up, you know. Holy Spirit mosh pit, you know, between the uh, the the first row and the stage, and they're, they're, literally they're all just kind of waving like sea amoeba, you know, in the tide. Well, we can succeed, we can shine, and we can be hidden. 
Actually, I think that's sea anemones. Yeah, sea anemones uh, just waving in the tide. This is not God the Holy Spirit. Oh, release the spirit of adoption, God. From the front to the back, oh God. Release, release, release the spirit of adoption, God. That your children would play. Let them play today. Oh, let them play today. Let them play, let them play, let them play, let them play today. You know, and the weird irony is, is that, you know, them, you know, in church, you know, reciting the, you know, actually praying the Lord's Prayer together as a group, they would consider that to be, you know, if you did that in church, that would be the, you know, the kind of stuff that a dead church does. Yeah, they're alive here, right here. Yeah. Oh, that's what I hear daddy say. Ollie, 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 oxen free. Time to play, time to play, time to play. Pray and play. Yeah, that's what God's saying, huh? Yeah. Play and pray. It's time to play, it's time to play, join the house, joy, 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 join the house, tickle your children, God, tickle, tickle your children, God. So, you know, you know, you've heard of Tickle Me Elmo, apparently it's Tickle Me Jesus. God with your love, oh God. Oh, tickle him, tickle him, tickle him, tickle Yeah, I think that the devil is, like, making sport of these people. Oh, tickle him, tickle him, tickle him, tickle him, tickle him, tickle him. Oh, especially the tired ones. Tickle the tired ones, Daddy. Tickle the ones who feel really, really grouchy. Tickle, 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 tickle them, Daddy. Oh, this is just creepy. We play with them, hide and seek and seek and find, hide and seek and seek and find, hide and seek and seek and find. Uh, wow. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not demonic at all. Oh, oh. Oh, release the joy. Just just release joy on somebody right now. Just release the joy, the joy, the joy, the joy, the joy. I love, I love that we can change the atmosphere. Yeah. And I'm okay, yeah, that, that's about as much of that as I can take. Wow, what a mess. Yeah, so, um, folks, I mean, it's, I just do not understand why anybody in their right mind who calls themselves a Christian, who has a Bible that they can actually open and read, 
would think for whatever reason that Heidi Baker is somehow some super spiritual person plugged into, uh, you know, God, the Holy Spirit uh, when she's not. I mean, that is not a manifestation of God, the Holy Spirit, that it's a manifestation of something. It's just not the Holy Spirit. Moving along. It's a lot. 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 Like life. Time for an Eric Dykstra update. Pastor and servant. That's one of our original vision casting leader update musics, if you would, um, tunes that we've used here. And we're going to be listening to a portion of an Eric Dykstra sermon entitled The Power of Words. And uh, we're not going to be able to get through all of this before the first break, so just keep in mind there will be a break in the middle of this. Um, but uh, here's Eric Dykstra to explain to us the power of words. Here we go. How you doing, Crossing Church? Anybody ever heard a Seether song in church before? Yes! You've heard uh, Seether? What? <laughs> what? What? So they played a, a, what, a Seether song. Okay. Church before? I have. Wow, that's impressive. Where? Uh, somebody's a guy at church in Princeton. And they did, they did a Seether song? That's impressive. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's impressive. Did you hear the key line of that song? Words are weapons. I'm going to say words are weapons. Words are weapons that you can use your words to fight for you or to fight against you. Um, okay, kind of. Your word, the words that come out of your mouth can fight for your life or fight against your life. So when you're facing a difficult situation and you're like, yeah, this sucks. I can't believe I'm facing this. I can't believe I'm going through this. This really sucks. Wine, wine, gripe, gripe, gripe. What you're doing is punching yourself in the face regarding your future. Uh, what? <laughs> okay. So, yeah, Eric Dykstra is uh, one of these, these strange fellows who, you know, he's kind of like a, a snowball. Yeah, you know, it has rolled downhill theologically and he's kind of picked up a whole bunch of stuff that it's sticking in you know to his theology so he's got a little bit of the word of faith heresy weird enough is that you know he at one point was exposed to telling chavidians stuff so he kind of gets grace on some levels uh, but then he's got all this other weird stuff so apparently you know if you're saying things like oh you know i'm not good enough and oh yeah you're punching yourself in the face and you're ruining your future and the Bible nowhere actually teaches this. Now, we're, that's just to kind of get us started. What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to take our first break. And uh, when we come back, we will continue with Eric Dykstra, see where he goes with this, and we'll figure out what this really is. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. 
Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of our Eric Dykstra update, as well as a Steve Muncie update. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Deep in the Australian wilderness and also the typhoid infested waters of the Bongo River, Captain Worthington and his ragtag group of men have found themselves to be hopelessly lost. Surrounded by the vicious savages of the Hamuku tribe, and now the TP has run out. It's been 27 days without food, and Private Jenkins doesn't care. Oh, do shut up, Nigel! We don't need you narrating every little thing that goes on. It's bad enough already. We don't need you reminding everyone about it. Sorry. Now, gentlemen, the hour is dire. There's not much hope of us getting out of this predicament with our lives or sanity. What are we going to do, Captain? Well, we can do one of two things. We can either die in a blaze of glory, charging the Hibuku tribe in battle, or sit on the riverbank saying to ourselves, Oh, Mommy, Mommy, please make the bad people go away. I vote for the second one. Shut the noise, you pansy! Now, Captain, I have an idea that might just save our hides from the impending doom on the other side of the tree line. Well, out with it, man. Out with it. I happen to have... In my possession, a copy of Zondervan's latest book, The Grimoire of Modern Prayer. Well, that's excellent news. We have TP again. Woohoo! No, no, no. We're not using it for that. Then what exactly are we using it for? Uh, it says this. With this volume, you can command and control the very will of God with relative ease. Oh. Are you sure we can do that? Well, the, the book says we can. Is there any proof? Well, Stephen Furtick did write the introduction where he explains how it's changed his life. Well, um, how does it work? Simple. We can choose from any one of these prayers. Captain Worthington, a book is approaching. Blasted. Perkins, get your act together and start reading from the book. It's our only chance. I don't know which one to read first. Uh, Which ones do you have to choose from? Well, there's the uh, Scenting Prayer, the Circle Maker Prayer, the Prayer of Jabez. The, The Circle One. Let's go with that one. Okay, the book says to draw a circle around what you're praying for. Well, that's us. Quick, men, draw a circle in the dirt around us. Step two, begin to pray for whatever it is that you're in need of. I really want a Ferrari. A Ferrari. You nitwit, we need protection. Now pray, audaciously. Oh, Lord, we are not going to leave this circle until you rescue us from our enemies. Amen. Thank God, Nigel! Are you sure? Pretty sure. (laughs) Unless he can breathe without his head being attached to his neck. Oh, dear. 
Well, there goes our narrator. What are we going to do, sir? Well, the circle prayer didn't work, so let's try something else. Packins! Working on it, sir. I, I think I got it. <laughs> I, I don't believe it's a... The, the Hibuku Drive didn't have catapults. Jumping Jehoshaphat. This next prayer had better work, Perkins. This one will work. It's the, uh, it's the Sun Sandstone prayer. What good will that do? It's in the middle of the night. It doesn't matter what you think. This is sure to work. We just have to have audacious enough faith to ask God for the impossible. You heard the man. Get praying. I still want a Ferrari, a pet raptor, no debts. Ooh, and better sex. You're just not getting this, are you? Captain, they, And that, children, is where I'll stop for tonight. Aw, Mom, it was just getting good. Aw, won't you please, please tell us more? I can't tell you anymore tonight. It's past your bedtime, and tomorrow is a school day. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that your future has nothing to do with the words that you speak. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring uh, Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. If you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, Zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, we had just started uh, Eric Dykstra's sermon, The Power of Words, and uh, now we're going to continue with it, and we'll draw a connection to what I think this is because it's not biblical. We continue. With your own words. Imagine a boxer who's like, wham! Wham! That's what people do all the time with their words. Yeah, the boxer was punching himself in the face. Words either set you up for success or they set you up to destroy you. Uh So words either set you up for success or they destroy you. This is not biblical. This is magic. In fact, this is what it's more akin to what we're listening to here. Macoides, Picorum, Satis D. Nothing happened. Am I doing something wrong? Well, to tell you the truth, it does seem a bit old-fashioned. After all, we are in the 20th century. What do you suggest? Well, it needs rhythm, tempo, music. As I always say, do it with a flair. 
Uh, do you mind if I have a go? Oh, of course not. Now come along, you lot. We need all the help we can get. Dracuna, Macoides, Tracorum Satis D. Dracuna, Macoides, Tracorum Satis D. The dogs did Macoides, yeah, that's right. That's from the movie Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Tracuna McCoydes Tracorum Satis D. Substitutionary locomotion. Yeah, I guess, you know, you have the power to do all kinds of things, you know, with just words. Uh-huh. are basically weapons and you could use them in a positive way you can be like you know what i don't understand the situation i don't know the whole story but what i believe is god is going for me in front of me he's clearing the way that my future is going to be fine that when you're dealing with an issue of like a health issue you believe that you know what my god heals he's going to take care of me that when you're dealing with a marriage issue you're like you know what my god's going to fix my marriage god loves us god's for us not against us he's going to heal this marriage when you're dealing with any kind of issue you want to you want to put out there your words can fight for you or against you. Uh-huh. I see. Apparently, you know, our words are, you know, they're just like, you know, God's words, you know, because in the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth and he said, let there be light. And there was light. And see, you know, in the same way, our words, you know, they just, you know, as soon as they leave our lips, you know, they either create a positive future or a negative future because the world is just so magical. It's almost like witchcraft. But see, the thing is, is that the Bible doesn't teach this doctrine. This is not biblical prayer, and nor is this anything that Scripture tells us to do. We are to ask God in prayer to assist us, to help us, to and pray for those in need, believing that God is good, he's merciful, he's sovereign, he's just, and he knows what just what is best to take care of a person and sometimes when we pray you know god will act in in actually according to the way we've prayed it's one of the amazing things about god there's several prominent examples in scripture where god has if you would adjusted his course based upon the prayers of his saints and in his sovereign will he's chosen to do this but it's not because of our words. No, it's because of the one who trusts and has faith in the one true God and believes that he is merciful, believes that he is kind, believes that he wants the best and humbly, and and that's the important piece of this, humbly comes before him and makes our petitions and prayers known so that God can act on our behalf. It's not like he's he he's his hands are tied. They're not. Sometimes God chooses to do nothing until we pray, and that's an interesting thing about uh, what Scripture reveals here. But what Eric Dykstra is saying here, this isn't prayer. You know, so all of a sudden there's a bad circumstance that comes up in your life, and you know you go to the doctor, and the doctor says you know the that terrible word that nobody wants to hear. He says the word cancer. And, you know, going home after hearing that diagnosis, it doesn't matter what words you say. Whether you say, I'm doomed, or if you say, you know, 
God, you know, I, I'm, I'm the head and not the tail. And, you know, and Christ wants me to be healed. See, that's not going to create your future. It's not. And so, yeah, this is, this is a dangerous, dangerous teaching that is infested evangelicalism that I think is basically a demonic diversion to keep us from actually praying. Because the person who sits there and says, you know, I decree and declare and I affirm and I'm standing on this promises. You know what they're not doing? They're not actually praying. They're not. They're being presumptuous. Big difference. The power of words. Everybody say the power of words. Now, before I go on, I just got to say hello to Zimmerman and Big Lake real quick. Can we say hello to those guys? Guys, thanks for hanging out with us and watching on camera the power of words. So I was thinking, um, hold on. I, sometimes I get hungry during services. Um, let's see what I have here. Let's see. Let's see. So uh, some of the frosting came off. I got to get the frosting back on there. Oh, see. That would be a jelly donut he just pulled out of a lunch sack. Let's see here. I'll put that down. And, oh. How many like how many people like jelly donuts? See, Pastor Jason knows that I really, really love a good donut. For I don't know what it is, but like donuts are my crack. <laughs> and what function does this serve in a sermon? And now he's eating the jelly donut. Yeah, baby, that's awesome right there. That is good stuff. You know what makes <laughs> Hi, honey. Oh, by the way, by the way, we're fasting today. Hi, sweetie. And, well, actually, no, you're not. I, I must have used this example as an excuse. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, imagine for a second, what's the best part about, like, a jelly donut? The best part is this, is this jelly filling. Uh, huh. I see. It, it's, it's a metaphor. Imagine a jelly donut filled with sardines. <laughs> Suddenly loses its value, doesn't it? <laughs> Suddenly what was really awesome a second ago becomes really, really disgusting to you. It becomes revolting because of what it was filled with. Now I'm going to make a statement about words, and this is really important because it's kind of the whole point of the talk. What fills our words fills our lives. No biblical text for this. What you fill your mouth with in terms of words is what you fill your life with. Something- so apparently, again, this is magic. This is witchcraft. This is not prayer. This is not biblically trusting in, you know, in what God's word says. This is really, it's, it's magic. It's witchcraft. Say the right words and your future your you know and your circumstances change learn the right incantation and rather than saying abracadabra or anything like that you end up saying i am the best i'm healthy i'm strong i'm yeah uh, those words don't change your future god's world that he's created doesn't work off of magic and you're not God. When God speaks, things happen. God spoke the universe into existence. That does not mean that we speak the future into existence. 
walk around and they just talk negative and they whine, they gripe, they, they complain, and they can't figure out why their life smells like sardines. See, but you filled your own life. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. We've been talking about this over the last couple yeah, of weeks. Yeah, and that, that verse is way out of context. Yeah, the Bible does say life and death are in the power of the tongue. The question is, what does it mean? Does it mean that that means you, well, your words, well, they create your future? No, this is a proverb. Okay, and let me put it in context. It's Proverbs 18, and I'll start at verse 20 so that you can see the, uh, the, the, uh, the, con- the context. And then we'll go ahead and we'll read just a, a note from like a good Bible commentary, like the Lutheran Study Bible. Here's what it says. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. That's Proverbs 18.20. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So the question is, what does the proverb mean? Does that mean that you can somehow speak things, you know, your future into existence? Well, don't you think that if that's really what the Bible were saying, that it would have other passages that very clearly and explicitly teach, if you want to create a positive future for yourself, you have to speak positive words. You see, nowhere in Scripture does it say that. It's just this obscure text, and the question is, what does it mean? Proverbs 18, 20, and 21, the note from the Lutheran Study Bible. We reap what our words sow. Oratory skill, especially in a media-driven age, often brings profit and success. To speak well is a valuable gift. We may hear in this proverb a caution against those who would lie and deceive by God's name, profiteering by the gospel or from false teaching. It is also true that laborers deserve their wages and godly and faithful pastors should receive their living from speaking the gospel. Christians ought to share all good things with their instructors, adequately providing for the continuation of the ministry of word and sacrament in their midst. So yeah, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So speak the truth, preach the gospel, don't deceive and tell lies to make a profit. That's really kind of what's getting at the heart of this proverb. It's not teaching, oh, you're going to create your future by the words that you speak, which is a magical worldview that is not taught in Scripture. That literally, you can cause your your world to be filled with something beautiful and great and positive. Your marriage can be sweet like jelly. It can be... Seriously, man, you're... your, your workplace could be beautiful and a great place to be. Or your workplace could be destroyed because you decided to leave sardines in your office. And it got really hot in there. <laughs> and your words did that. So when you get together, you know, after the meeting with two or three people, and like, <laughs> you're smelling the whole place up like fish. And then when you're in that same situation and you walk out of the meeting and you didn't necessarily like all of the results, but what you do is go, you know what? I don't really understand the whole thing, but I know God's going to take care of me and I'm going to succeed and I'm going to embrace this so that that my career can succeed, my future can succeed, that God is with me, that he is for me. When you speak that way, you're much more likely to have a sweet future. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So there you go. It's all magic. You just got to learn how to say the right words and you can have a sweet future. Again, that is a magical witchcraft type worldview. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. Moving along. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. Time for a money grubbing televangelist update. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Everyone must anger for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phrase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go Money, 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 money. Yeah, talking about money, uh, one of the kings of the uh, money-grubbing televangelists is uh, Steve Muncie. And uh, he is a regular feature on Benny Hinn's television program on Trinity Broadcasting Network. And the guy is basically uh, a snake oil salesman, is a good way to put it. But what we're going to be listening to uh, for the next few minutes is um, Steve Muncie explaining how you are great. That's the message that he is. He believes that God, the Holy Spirit, has laid on his heart to share with you that you, that you, you are great. But just watch the theatrics that he goes through and the gyrations he goes through in order to teach this bizarre doctrine. Of course, um, he clearly doesn't know Hebrew. We'll kind of get there in a second uh, to explain what's missing here and uh, and be be advised, be advised. Our new bovine scatology um, technology is in place. So let's go. It's your day. And this is the day that God's going to do great miracles for you. Nope, I'm not Benny Hinn. I'm Steve Muncy. And I get the, the rare privilege of bringing a word directly to you. I, I, I tell you, what I'm about to share with you today, on a national scale, I don't know. I know I've never, ever, ever uttered this word on Benny Hinn's program or even preaching for him. Did you know that you that are watching me are great? Did you? Uh-huh. Yeah, so, so much for humble yourself in the sight of the Lord or God exalts the humble and and humbles the exalted, uh, those who exalt themselves. You know, you that are watching me are great. And did you know that in the Bible, there is only one time, this whole book, where it says a great woman. One time. Uh, <laughs> now, get your Bible ready. Only one time in the Bible does it, does it, Acknowledge a person that is great. Uh-huh. I begin to look into that, and the, the Holy Spirit said, when you go on, this is your day, and that special person who is watching, you tell them they are great. Uh, so God the Holy Spirit spoke to Steve Muncy, 
prior to going on to Benny Hinn's This Is Your Day, and, well, and said, you make sure you tell this special person who's watching that they are great. Could that special person possibly be you? We continue. Then I said, well, Lord, what, 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 made, what, what made you say that this was a great woman in the fourth chapter of Second Kings. Okay, so we're fourth chapter of Second Kings, and you know Steve Muncy, he, you know, of course, he just dialogues with the Holy Spirit like all the time. You know, apparently all the channels are open, and you know, God, the Holy Spirit, constantly talks to him, so he's able to ask questions and get answers. But then it's weird because if God, the Holy Spirit, is really the one talking to Steve Muncy, then you'd think that God, the Holy Spirit, would give Steve Muncy a you know a lesson in basic biblical Hebrew. But we continue. And may I just suggest or provoke our thinking to um, say what what makes a person great? And is there such a thing called the law of great? The well, law of great. Well I begin I begin to say, Okay, God, I'm going to I'm going to be right in front of the camera on Pastor Benny Hinn's program, and you're saying that the person that's watching me, you're going to have them watching, and they are great? And and how do I prove that? As he began to show me in the fourth chapter, he said, there was a great woman. Let uh-huh. me read it to you. Okay. Said, yeah, read it to me. And fell on the day Second that Elisha passed to Shunem, where, where was a great woman. And I said... So I will pass on television. I will pass and go to Benny Hinn, and I will stare into the camera, and I am proclaiming that the person watching me is great. And when, the ca- or when that person fits the category or is in the category or there is a blessing of great upon them, what happens? What is the manifestation? Yeah, uh, you know, boy, we got a major problem here. Um, and the, yeah, our bovine scatology technology has uh, kicked in here at this point. Yeah, if you have your Bible, Second Kings chapter four, verse eight, and uh, let me read it to you from the English Standard Version. And I'll also cross-reference it with the NIV. Both of them actually capture the essence of the Hebrew here quite well. Here's what it says. 2 Kings chapter 4, um, verse 8. One day Elisha went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived. Now, I don't know what translation um, yeah, Steve Muncy is, uni- is using, but um, the uh, the Hebrew word here is gadol. That's the Hebrew word. And in fact, in context, it's gadolah, um, which basically can mean great. But the way it's being used, one of the definitions for gadol is that, well, it means a person is wealthy. In fact, there's several instances in the uh, Old Testament where somebody is noted as being wealthy using the word gadol. And uh, let's take a look at the NIV just to see if we do a little bit of cross-referencing here. Here's what it says in the NIV. 2 Kings chapter 4, uh, verse 8, One day Elisha went to Shunem, 
and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So both the ESV and the NIV capture the uh, idea of Gadol uh, rather well here um, by saying that she was wealthy or well-to-do. The NASB translates Gadol as prominent woman. Yeah. So um, you would think that if uh, Phil Muncie is actually hearing from God the Holy Spirit, that God the Holy Spirit would say, hey, l- l- listen, um, Phil, I mean, not Phil, but Steve, this is uh, this is the Holy Spirit here. And uh, yeah, the reason why it says great there, because it means that she was prominent, she was wealthy, she was well-to-do. It, she's not saying that she's great, you know, like she's a great person. That's not it at all. It's saying that she's basically just well-to-do. She's a prominent person in her community. ...of great. In this case... Let me tell you why I can say, by faith, you're great. Now, we're not talking about you being perfect. I'm not, I'm not here to describe how you're supposed to be perfect. I'm just talking about the law of great and why I'm calling you great and why I sense that the only place in the Bible where it says a great woman and then to analyze it and say, Lord, what is the word you're trying to say to the person, the special individual that's watching me today on Benny Hinn, this is your day. So when I begin to look, I must tell you, let me just tell you as I, as I, I'm going to come over to Pastor Hinn's desk and just, and, and just show you because this is going to bring a miracle. Uh-huh. Be- it's going to bring a miracle, huh? Because in the category of great is supernatural and incredible miracles that happen. Uh-huh. In the category of great are supernatural miracles that can happen. Right. Uh, the Hebrew word gadol is describing the fact that this was a wealthy, prominent woman. It doesn't say anything about miracles and things like that because she was so she was great in and of herself. How? Well, let, let, let's talk about the only place in the Bible where it says great woman, here in the King James in in Second Kings. Yeah, again, you should really read Hebrew. It would help. Is this woman, this woman and her husband, the man of God would pass by. Now think about the fact that you have a television, you have many channels on your set, uh, and you and you you uh you take your uh you know you take your television uh channel holder and and you begin to switch the channels. You can hold it in your hand, and you can begin... You mean a remote control. ...to switch the channels. Yeah. And you're passing through uh, the television, or you turn it, or you press the button, but you're passing through the channels. All of a sudden, you come across Benny Hinn. You come across me. The Bible says that when Elisha, the man of God, passed by, he was... (laughs) (laughs) So while you're flipping channels, the man of God is passing by, and that would be either you know Steve Muncie or Benny Hinn. Passing by, she said, I perceive, I think this is a holy man. So you pass by on this television set, and remember, remember every one of you that I've called great, that something incredible is about to happen to you. Uh-huh. How much will it cost me? In fact, I'm going to speak to you at this moment before I go any further, that something that you have been wanting, you, 
You have been yeah, me. Are you pointing at me? Wadding. You have been believing. You have you have said, "Oh God, I wish this could happen," or "I believe," or "God, I have faith. I really need this to happen." And yeah, the thing I've been praying for is that people like you uh, get off the airways, and this the body of Christ repudiates you, rejects you, and the people like you have to go get a real job because Christians will stop listening to you. That's yeah. When's that going to happen? That's the thing I want. I don't know what that is. It could be a child. It could be good children, that they are, your children will turn out good. You need a financial breakthrough. You need a new job. You need healing for your body. Whatever it is, today, because you're watching, you are going to be marked as great. In that... Oh, so I'm going to be marked as great because I'm watching you right now. In that, you will also... You will also, in this law of great, that I believe is upon you and will be upon you. Uh-huh, this law of great that's going to be upon me. That you will perceive at this moment what I just said when I said, God is getting ready to do something for you that you've never had done before by God in your life. Uh-huh. And all because, you know, while you were passing by, while I was flipping channels, I, you know, I perceived that you were a man of God, although I did not perceive that at all. Okay. Now, he's done many things, but you're perceiving I'm a man of God. Now, no, I'm perceiving that you are a complete wolf and you are a charlatan. Something is getting ready to happen. Are you ready? So the Bible says, now, now remember, remember that when we read in the Bible, anything this we read. This guy is like, like slick con artist. Read in the Bible, this is the God of uh, the same God uh, of kings or in the Old Testament, the same God today and forever. So anything that happens is nothing but a testimony of God saying, I'm going to do it again. I, I want to do it again. Uh, oh, okay. So God, so the Bible is just God saying, I want to do it again. So he wants to raise Jesus again? Yeah, I don't think so. So the Bible said that this woman, this woman, we don't, we, don't even, we don't even know her name. I don't even know your name. You're looking at me. I don't know your name. I don't know your name. I, now, you, I, I might know some of you, but I, I really don't know your name. You know that. But you perceive I'm a man of God, and I've just spoken something that... Some, yeah, I perceive you are a total snake oil salesman. Things getting ready to happen that's never happened before in your life in the next few moments. Uh-huh. The Bible says that she perceived he was a man of God, and she told her husband, she says, you know what, we need to build him. I see him, he's going, this uh, Elisha would go, and he would go. Now watch me, camera. I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave the studio, and then I'm going to come out on the steps, so get ready here. So he would pass by, and he would... Uh, Every day, every or every week, whenever it was, he would pass by her house. And she said to her husband, she said, uh, why don't we give to him? Why don't we build on, build him a condominium? Why don't we build uh, and buy furniture? Because one night, he's, or one day, he's, gonna, he's not going to make it to the School of Prophets. Let's support his ministry without him even knowing. Uh huh. <laughs> Let's support him without him even knowing. Um. Okay. Let's see here. Uh, now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem. There was a wealthy woman 
who lived there, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there in for him a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. Yeah, it's pretty hard for her to do that without him knowing it. Uh, yeah, so I'm surprised our technology didn't go off. Maybe there's a glitch. Oh, there it is. Yeah, it's bovine scatology technology. We're still working the bugs out of it, you know. So the Bible said that one day he's walking by and his servant Gehazi walks up to the house and says, uh, it's getting dark and we were headed for the school of prophets. She smiles, her and her husband. And he said, do you mind if we stay on your front porch or somewhere because uh, we're not going to make it to our destination? Where are you getting this? Now, she had already built, they had already invested uh, dollars, uh, money, currency. They had taken time. They built on to their house and made it his room and another room for Gehazi and bought furniture and filled it. He didn't know that, the man of God. So she said, sure, come in. So she, she and her husband take him to his room. And he says, what is this? What did you do? Where, where did these curtains come from? Where, where, and, and the Bible said she, gave, she bought furniture. Her and her husband bought furniture. And he didn't know anything about it. She said, we have spent a lot of money to provide you a place, sir. The prophet then, now remember we're talking about one place in the Bible where it says great woman and what makes God, the Holy Spirit, called this person great. So she leaves the room and his servant is there and he says, go and ask her what she needs. Now, here's the prophet, the man of God. She has given money to him by way of, of curtains and furniture. It's in the Bible, a bed. They have built onto their house. And he says to his servant, go ask her what she wants. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, I have come on television almost live, if I can say it, by way of you and I meeting face to face. And I've already said you're great. I've already proclaimed you're great. Uh, yeah. So you want my money. And the Bible said the servant went to the woman and said, now, my prophet just told me to come and ask you, what do you need? Now, I've come today on Benny Hinn's program to say to you, look right at you and tell you, what do you need? Oh, so you have the uh, the authority like, you know, the prophet Elisha to just, you know, give me whatever it is I want. Well, the thing I need is for guys like you to be off the air totally. What do you you need. The Bible says that the woman said, well, we're in our 70s and all of our life, my husband and I, we've wanted children. We haven't had children. Immediately, the, pro the, the servant said, I'll be right back. He goes right to the prophet. He goes into the bedroom where they have prepared 
uh, the bedroom and the furniture, the Bible says, and built onto their house for the man of God. And he says they've never had children. Immediately, the prophet says she'll be pregnant. She's going to get pregnant right now. She, she, you go tell her she's going to have a child. He goes, so what are you going to tell us, Steve Muncy? Back to her, just as I am right now moving, moving right where Benny Hinn sits in this area, and tell you that in the next few minutes I'm getting ready to pray. And what you have never experienced... Some have never experienced being a millionaire. Some has never experienced. Some, some of you have never experienced being a millionaire. He's he's gonna he's gonna hand out millionaire miracles. A thousand. Some of you have never experienced being out of debt. Some of you have never experienced a healthy body. Some of you have never experienced children and and what God is doing. But in the next few moments, I'm going to declare that what you have been believing for is going to happen. I see, because he's the same as, you know, the prophet Elisha. Now, immediately when he said that, when he, when he, I'm getting up here now and, and I'm going and, and, and I'm saying to the woman, the, the servant is saying to the great woman, or the Bible calls her great. He says, ma'am, a year from now, nine months from now, you're going to have a son. And immediately, camera, you got to get this, you got to get this, you got to get this. Immediately, the, the Bible says... She says, don't make fun of me. She says, don't make fun of me. Don't, don't tell me something that's going to happen that's not. And just a few moments ago when I said that God is going to do something in your life and that's, he's never done, you said something inside of you said, yeah, how do you know? I'm a little skeptical of you. I, how, 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 don't make fun of me. You, you don't know what I need and I have been believing for. And oh, man, this, this is just... This is con artist exegesis. And, and you're, Sorry, con artist eisegesis. Ugh, man, this is con artist eisegesis. Telling me that's going to happen in the next few moments. Yes. Why? Because the law of great. One time in the Bible. Yeah, the law of great. One time in the Bible. There is no law of great in the Bible, especially in Second Kings chapter 4, verse 8. It just uses the word gadol, which means that she was wealthy. She was prominent. One time you read a great woman under the King James Version. Yeah, and that means there's a law of great now. Yeah. I am promoting. I am speaking because you're watching. I proclaim you're great. Uh huh. You, you proclaim I'm great. Really? When you become Great in the category of God, God says, ask him what they want, and I will do it. Oh, so when you become great, then God says, ask whatever you want, and then I'll do it. Okay, so how do I become great in that way? The Bible says that the woman said, please don't make fun of me. We haven't had children. You, you walk in here and you say, and, and I, we gave to the prophet. We gave, we gave, we gave big. We, we built all yeah, the we gave, we gave. Notice how this is just a slick story designed to get you to send money to Benny Hinn. I wonder what, how much of a cut Steve Muncy is going to get for this. <sighs> wow. A house and furniture and we gave to the ministry and... Now you say, I'm going to have a baby. Don't make fun of me. And he says, ma'am, I'm not making fun of you. Ma'am, you're great. You, you've done something. The highest level in God's kingdom that makes you great 
is when you provide and you did what you did for ministry. Uh, so yeah, so there you go. Just send in your money to Benny Hinn and, and Steve Muncy. When you once you fulfill the requirements of you know becoming great, because it's the law of great. Well, Steve Muncy, you know he's gonna he's he's gonna speak it, and God's gonna release it into your life. <sighs> wow, that is utterly blasphemous. God's word teaches nothing of the sort. And all of this based upon an out-of-context verse from the King James, where if he knew Hebrew, he's not interested in learning Hebrew, by the way, he would realize that this has nothing to do with what he's saying, but then he's not interested in speaking the truth. He's teaching for shameful gain the things he ought not to teach. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. An Adam Hushka sermon, supposedly to teach us what the Bible tells about hell. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable, or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We'll be reviewing an Adam Hushka sermon. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Narrate Church, Helena, Montana, Adam Hushka presiding. The name of the sermon series is Seriously? 
And the uh, sermon we'll be listening to is entitled, Seriously, Hell? Yeah, and um, the question is, how do you think about God's judgment? Why is it important? Well, you'd think that a man who, uh, well, has a rapidly growing church out in Helena, Montana, who really wants to save people, would tell them the truth. But uh, see, Adam Hushka is not into making propositions. It's more about having a conversation. So he's very postmodern that way. So let's see if he actually opens up the biblical text and shows us what God's word says regarding the doctrine of Christ's imminent return in judgment to judge the living and the dead and eternal life and eternal damnation. Back off on the music. Without any further ado, here is Adam Hushka in his sermon entitled, Seriously? Hell? Here we go. So, hi, you guys. How are you doing? It's unseasonably cold, isn't it? Does it just feel like you spent yesterday cold all day? If, if not, that means you weren't helping us at the climbing gym yesterday because we started in T-shirts and we ended freezing. It was the type of cold where you knew that your nose was just dripping continuously, but you stopped caring. That type of cold. Uh, listen, if, you, if, you're, if this is your first time or if you're here all the time, um, there's a couple things that we trip over purposely and often, and that is that there's really two things that we strive to do and, and do well, and that is gather and scatter. What we mean by gather is this. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we like the opportunity. This Yeah, he kind of beats around the bush. It's going to take him a little, bit of wa- uh, a little bit of time to actually, you know, get serious about, you know, dealing with the topic at hand. And you would think that that would include, you know, like opening up the Bible and let's take a look at what God's Word says, but eh, he doesn't really get there. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we like the opportunity this affords us to create experiences that are helpful and engaging no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey. Uh, if you're a Christ follower, we, we hope this is a launching pad, uh, that, it, that it catapults you, uh, that it realigns your thinking for the week, kind of like a chiropractor, only cheaper. And I don't know, that's maybe a bad joke, but... Because chiropractors aren't all, well, anyway. Okay, so I was going to say they're not all that expensive, but then that's relative too, isn't it? So now I've just created this giant tangent, and I should just shut up and keep talking, which I'll do. Anyway, we value this um, for a Christ follower. We also, for those of you that aren't sure what you're going to do with Jesus, or you're not quite following him yet, or not even sure if you ever will, uh, we, we think this is a space where we can create conversation for life and marriage and work that's valuable, especially for you, even for you. And so that's the scattering piece, and then there's, or that's the gathering piece, and then there's the scattering piece, and by that we mean mattering. Uh, we feel like that that our commission is is to put the divine on display to matter in such a way that that if we cease to exist, uh, the most ardent critic of Christianity would be bummed. Not necessarily because they've come to agree with our thinking about Jesus, though that would be great as well. Uh, but because they recognize the tangible impact. And so if you cut us, what we bleed is gathering and scattering. And and the scattering thing, that happens organically. And part of what we're trying to do is validate, like, listen, you're already busy. You already have families. You already have jobs. You already have friends. You already have kids. You already have all these responsibilities. And so let's just be clear that, that, that this is the easy part of following Jesus. And those other six days are the hard part. And so there's validation to just putting a towel over our arm in our everyday lives. And then periodically we like to scatter together. And that, we think, is about compiling resources and energy and skills and and mattering in those tangible ways. And so yesterday we did that. Thank you to those of you who had runny noses on our behalf. Uh, We we scattered it. There's a local climbing gym starting up. If you've not seen about that, you should go to our Facebook page or website and you'll see their video. Really excellent thing for the community and students and families and climbers and everybody in between. 
So thanks for helping us pull nails from boards and sandboards and all kinds of things. That was fantastic. And what that segues us into is our next scattering event, which is Helena Ailes for Trails, which is kind of weird. Like uh, some of you are whispering, like, seriously, beer in a church? Like this is incongruent. It doesn't go together. And let me just be the first to say we, we get that, uh, the, the tension here. It, it's not lost on me. It's not lost on the staff. It's not less lost on the management team. And it's especially not lost on the council. Uh, part of the win for us here is is to demonstrate responsible consumption. Uh, we, we think oftentimes we just turn the microphone over to an abuse. So the job of the church is to demonstrate responsible consumption? <laughs> I, I thought the job of the church is to make disciples and baptizing and teaching all the Christ. You know, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> called brewing just like there's an art called making chocolate and there's healthy ways and unhealthy ways to engage in that but but especially what we like about this event is is the chance that it gives us to collaborate uh with local people on a on a topic that matters for everybody which is centennial trail and the way that allows us to come come alongside community members who 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 aren't interested in jesus and aren't a part of narrate but suddenly we we have common ground it's something we started, but we started it with some people, some small business people, some civic people, and that energy has just grown. Uh, today, Ailes is led by a consortium of people from all different kinds of places, some of whom are a part of this and some of whom aren't. And really what we're all trying to do is go, like, let's, let's serve Helena and, and let's create an experience that, that we think will raise 20000 this year at the event for Centennial Trail but also one that, that's affordable and accessible. You, you may have noticed that there's lots of great fundraisers out there, and a lot of them are really expensive, and that's fantastic. And our goal here is to go, let, let's create an experience that for that 20-something couple with kids and a new job, and they're struggling to, to do anything pleasurable with any extra money, let's create an experience for them where, where they leave having been treated like royalty. And, and they leave, and I've had these interactions where people go like, you, you could have charged way more. And we go, yep, because that's part of the win here. And also to create an experience where, where the vendors, they, they want to come back. And, and some friends have helped us create an experience where we have 18 breweries this year. That's not because those guys don't have lots and lots of opportunities. It's because thanks to you all and this community, we've created an experience that the word is out. Like this is one of them that you want to be at and you want to get invited to. And many of those brewers that we've added this year, we didn't ask. Like they, they, they came to us and said, like, seriously, can we be a part of this? So there's that element. And then we, we, we want to surf. We, we want to matter. We want people to leave going, weird, I thought I knew everything that I needed to understand about what it meant to be a Christ follower, and you guys have just messed with me. And, and, and the big win is on the day of the event, it'll take over 100 volunteers serving at this thing, and the great thing is about half of them will, will be narrate people. And half of them will be people who have never been to narrate, maybe never will. And you get to kind of serve side by side, whether it's pounding uh, tent spikes or pouring or whatever it is. And suddenly, like, the world gets a little smaller and we realize that, wow, wait a minute, we have as much in common as we, we don't. So would love for you to be a part of this. It's a huge part of the, the way we are telling God's story in our community. But let me say this. If, if you have an issue with, with alcohol, with... How we are telling God's story in our community. What does that even mean? Can I just be the first to say, like, stay away? Like, we have lots of scattering opportunities. This one isn't yours. Lots more coming down the pike even this summer. And so we get that. If you're not 21, stay away. Please stay away. But otherwise, we, we would love for you to serve with us. So there's a sign-up sheet out there. What, what we're asking for is your name and email, and then Sarah will email you a forum, and you can kind of dialogue with her on the more specific details because there are lots of them. There's also posters out there. 
which our interest really isn't to um, decorate your dorm room, not yet. Um, but, but, you know, if you want to take one to the conference room or something along those lines, uh, and there's a place that you frequent that you'd love to put one up, go ahead and grab one of those. Speaking of trails, that's a mouthful. So last year I was saying that the, the, the worst thing is to come around a hairpin corner on a trail run and see. Yeah, still dragging his feet. He doesn't really, he doesn't seem like he's in a hurry to get to the topic. Corner on a trail run and see what is certainly a black bear up in front of you. And after putting it in 100% reverse and like having not even pivoted yet, hearing an elderly woman screaming, it's a dog, it's a dog. (laughs) So that was humiliating. Uh, This last Monday... I'm kind of on the fence about the whole don't fence me in 30K thing. And so this last Monday I was doing a run and I, I finished, I went up over Ascension and was meeting a friend in the old archery range parking lot. Uh, but he's a musician, so he was five minutes late. And so <laughs> just just calling it like I see it. And so as I was coming down to that old archery range parking lot and I could see my friend wasn't there yet, I was <clears throat> just kind of looking up on the hillside and, <clears throat> and I saw a tan colored creature with a white chest region flittering about on the hillside. And at first I thought, it's a dog. It's a dog. It's a dog. Fool me once, right? It's a dog. <clears throat> and it was tan. And then I, I saw it. And, it, and I, first I was like, it's a dog. And then no, no runner appeared. And like stray dogs, like you don't just run into them in the hell in a trail system. I've never seen one. And so I was watching a little bit closer and I could see it and I couldn't. And I could see it had a curled tail. Like I've never seen a mountain lion and I'm not a genius, but curled tail, that cues me off to something. And so I was getting my phone out actually. And I was going to, I was, I was literally thinking like, what do I do first? Do I text my friend Roy that I just about, that I just saw my first mountain lion or do I take a picture? And so as I was fumbling over my phone, Roy, I just want you to know I was thinking of you, I, I, I heard a woman's voice coming down from the pot spot that I had just came from, and she was headed to where I was heading. And so I thought, well, I need to, like, here's my chance to serve humanity and save a woman's life. And so I tried to get her attention, and, and was waiting for it first, and I assumed there were two because she was talking very loud. Turns out she was talking on her phone, like on her iPhone, and she's, she was pretty hardcore. And, and she couldn't hear me because she's talking on her phone and running, and I was like, what's it like to be the guy on the other end of the line? But never mind, that's its own thing. And so I had to like run up and intersect her on the trail, and I was like, ma'am, excuse me, but there's a lion up there. She's like, there's a lion? Yeah. So she's like, show it to me. So we went back to the thing, and I'm, I'm pointing like, it's in that bush right there. See that bush? It's just kind of proud around out there and she finally my friend still wasn't she's was like what are you gonna do she's like well i'm waiting for my friend like that's what i'm doing right now <laughs> meanwhile how am i rerouting my path i don't know i haven't decided yet uh, and, and she says well i'm just gonna go it'll scare away it's like did you have nuts and bolts for breakfast like who who is this woman so she takes off and she's going up those switchbacks up to the rodney ridge and i'm thinking like i'm watching an episode of shark attack right like because i mean I, I've not seen a lion. I know that if you see one, that's a bad sign. And so she gets just up into the region uh, where, where the lion was, and it, it and sure enough, it came spraying out the side, like towards town, and it was on that wide open meadow. And she's gone, and now it's staring at me, just looking at me. And then I realized it's a dog, <laughs> just a stray tan dog. So. Just in case you work with a woman that said she saw some idiot at the trailhead of Rodney, that, that would be me. And she has nuts and bolts for breakfast. You should know that as well. <clears throat> so uh, this morning we're going to continue in this series that we've been in for a while called Seriously. And 
uh, you know, kind of gets a little more serious from here. But but what we've talked about so far is is the resurrection and why it's important and what, what, why that's such a big deal in Christian history. Last week we talked about heaven and life after death and life after life after death. Even heard comments of people going, yeah, it seems right that there's a bodily, like there, there's a physical afterlife, but I sure wish it wasn't true. So that creates its own conversation. This morning I, I want to talk about a topic that is incredibly serious, that's highly emotive, and every bit as controversial as anything you could ever talk about on a Sunday morning. And in order to handle this controversial topic properly, you're going to need biblical texts. Integrity, the, the, the corollary is, is hell. It's, it's, it's God's judgment. And let me just say, kind of before we jump in, like you showed up with your opinions and I showed up with mine. Like hell isn't a topic, the afterlife, the judgment. All. It, our opinions don't matter. The question is, what did Jesus teach? with your opinions and I showed up with mine. Like hell isn't a topic, the afterlife, the judgment, all those kinds of things, Hades. Probably nobody sat down in the room and went like, boy, I've never thought about this. I don't have an opinion on this. We all do. And some of us even have verses to back up our opinions. And so if I could just kind of clear the air, my, my goal... And some of us have verses to back up our opinions? It, 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 really, this is just a matter of opinion and not about a matter of what God has revealed in his word. And some of us even have verses to back up our opinions. And so if I could just kind of clear the air, my, my goal here this morning is not to tell you what, what I think. And it's also not to tell you necessarily what I think you should think. And quite frankly, uh, th- though maybe somebody will question my motivation here, my, my goal is not even necessarily to argue with uh, argue what I think the Bible says. What I want to do here this morning is create a platform where I challenge you and invite you to think about how you think about God's judgment. This, this is really the, 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 the primary or the initial goal here is just to get you thinking about how do you think about this topic? Because some of you, uh, your, your lifelong Christ... So your goal is to just to get them to think about how they think about the topic. Shouldn't your goal be to open up God's word and reveal what God's word teaches? I believe in an eternal conscious hell because I believe in God's justice. And it's like, what do you say to that? Others of you would, and this is what makes it so complicated, you would take a different set of verses, maybe even the same verses, and you would say, I don't believe in hell because I believe in God's justice. Some of you are even deeper into the topic and you're more nuanced and you can even ask more specific questions. But to me, the tragedy of all of that is what we could easily miss is outside of this Christian continuum is another conversation and probably just as many of you are... Outside of this Christian continuum is another conversation? <clears throat> Revelation 14, verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever. Endeavor, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives a mark of its name. Yeah, Jesus, you know, not Jesus, but Revelation 14 is describing, well, hell, eternal, conscious torment. That's how Revelation 14 describes it. It's pretty straightforward. Um, another passage of Scripture. 
is uh, is the sheep and the goats judgment from Matthew chapter 25. Now notice, Hushka is not interested in, you know, actually opening up God's word and preaching it. He's just going to give us, you know, what, you know, there's in the continuum of Christianity, there's a whole bunch of different opinions. And some of them even have verses to go along with it. Uh-huh. Here's what uh, Matthew 25 says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, or give you a drink? Now, there's a few things that I want to point out here. We are not saved by works. The judgment already took place with the separation. You are judged by what you are, before works are even considered. And so the judgment already took place at the separation. And notice the text says of the sheep, the righteous. How can that be? They are declared righteous by grace through faith. This is what scripture teaches. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so now he's rewarding good works, right? So then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There you go. Jesus himself makes it clear that those who are not saved who do not trust in him, who are not declared righteous by grace through faith, they will go into eternal punishment. That's what he says. This is not my opinion. That's what scripture says. Oh, and if you think, oh, well, it can't be that. Well, again, there's a binding parallel here, if you would. To deny that this is eternal punishment is to deny that Jesus is also saying to the sheep that they have eternal life. Eternal punishment, eternal life. Those are, that's how this is going to go down on the last day when Jesus returns in glory. And we see from Revelation 14, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. This is what scripture says. And this is a sobering doctrine. Because when we talk about Jesus being our savior, now we know what Jesus is saving us from. The just penalty and punishment of our sins. That's what he is saving us from. But Adam Hushka, he's you know, seriously hell. He's not interested in, you know, opening up a biblical text. In fact, he says, well, have opinions. And oh, there's a lot of 
people who you know very you know very emotional about all of this and and some of the some people with their opinions they even have bible verses to go along with it yeah they do but you know he's not going to actually open up a biblical text and let the clear passages speak for themselves which is um well more than a problem we continue continuum is another conversation and probably just as many of you are here especially those of you who don't follow Jesus and for you it's like I, I, I don't even know where to start with Jesus because of what I understand Christians say about hell and oftentimes they say it very smug with a smile on their face so apparently I mean it's because of what Christians say about hell that keeps you know non-believers from coming to Jesus yeah I go to an art museum and I see medieval art, and quite frankly, it makes me question the whole thing. This morning, I just want to get you thinking. Because hell is a t- I just want to get you thinking. Don't you want to get them thinking by having them open up a b- the Bible and read the passages? Thinking. Because hell is a topic that I think we're, we're, we're intensely interested in, but we don't really like to talk about. It's something where a little bit, it goes a long way. And so really th- this morning, because we're a place that values conversations and questions, I just want to provoke you to think about how you think about this. Because- uh, you just want to provoke them about how they think about how they think about this. Uh-huh. Why don't you open your Bible? The job of a pastor is to preach the word. Because even if it doesn't matter to you in your day-to-day life, it matters out there. And it is, maybe for you, maybe for someone you do life with, one of the central hang-ups of the entire Christian story. And to me, it's unfortunate that there's this general sense that we all agree on a topic, but the more you dig around, the more you realize we don't all agree on any of it. So here's what I want to do this morning. I'm indebted to Scott McKnight, who several years ago at a convocation did something that I thought was highly creative, and it's literally been in my like um, plagiarism file for several years. And what I want to do is offer you a quiz that just gets you thinking about how you think about this. Now, it's not the type of quiz. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to ask you six questions, questions that identified or that, that help you identify with where you land right now. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to write it down. You don't have to share this with anybody. I promise I'm not going to do that. Like, hey, turn to your neighbor. You don't even have to tell your wife if you don't want or your husband or whoever. But I just want to ask six questions that, that I know for me when I heard this several years ago, it helped me begin to form some categories to this and help me understand what the issues are and what they really aren't. So number one, maybe you identify with this view. Number one, do you think a person must consciously respond to the overt offer in the message of Jesus in order to escape hell and go to heaven? Now, if that's what you believe, uh, that, that would make you of the traditionalist view. The traditionalist view would say that a person has to literally respond to the the gospel message as understood of Jesus and his death and grace and resurrection and all of it, or else they're going to hell. And in fact, if we're to notice traditionalist view, yeah, those traditionalists, yeah, that's terrible. To be honest, the traditionalist view would say that if you haven't heard of the historic Christ, your odds of making it into heaven are very, very slim. Now, if that's, if, if that's what you think, then that would make you of the traditionalist view. But maybe that doesn't appeal to you. There's still another option. Number two, do you think the wicked will experience judgment? Notice that that doesn't appeal to you. It doesn't matter what appeals to you or not. The question is, what does God's word reveal? But will then be extinguished from existence. This is very soft stuff, isn't it? Uh, if that's the way you think, that would make you of the annihilationist view. If you're an N.T. Wright guy... 
then, then you know that he talks about, that the way he talks about it is conditional immortality. It gets kind of nuanced. But what annihilationism ultimately says, if I could grossly oversimplify it, is that at death, those who responded to God's grace are in, and ushered into his eternal presence, first non-physically, then physically on the new heaven and the new earth when those two things come together. And those who are outside of God's grace are, are ushered into a place of punishment, but ultimately that, that punishment extinguishes the person from existence. So where annihilationism is distinct from traditionalism is annihilationism says that hell is not an eternal, nor is it a conscious thing. Mm -hmm. And yet Revelation 14, which I just read, says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Now, maybe neither of those appeal to you. Uh, Maybe number three appeals. Number three, do you think that everyone will eventually be saved? Now, this uh, would technically be called the universalist view, and to be fair, the universalist view had great following for the first four centuries of Christianity, then fell completely out of the conversation with Constantine, and in the 18th century has ramped up and is a very fast and to some troubling trend within current evangelicalism. Yeah, there's our bovine scatology technology alarm going off. Um, Yeah, that's just patently false. To say that, oh, universalism, you know, that was, oh, it had a huge following in, you know, Christianity and then fell out of, you know, favor with the time of Constantine. That is patently false. Spent a lot of time reading church fathers, and I can tell you this. The church fathers are extremely explicit about the the doctrine of hell. Let me read to you some from some of the church fathers. Second Clement. This is uh, Second Clement, uh, chapter five, verse five, or section five here. Yeah, uh, which was written about AD one fifty. If we do the will of Christ, we shall obtain rest. But if not, we if we neglect His commandments, nothing will rescue us from eternal punishment. But when they see how, um, this is in the next one, uh, chapter seven, uh, uh, 17.7, uh, but when they see how the, those who have sinned and who have denied Jesus by their words or by their deeds are punished with terrible torture and unquenchable fire, the righteous who have done good and who have endured tortures and have hated luxuries of life will give glory to their God, saying there shall be hope for him that has served God with his whole heart. Justin Martyr. Uh, in his first apology, uh, section 12, no more is it possible for the evildoer, the avaricious, the treacherous to hide from God than it is for the virtuous. Every man will receive the eternal punishment or reward which his actions deserve. Indeed, if all men recognize this, no one would choose evil even for a short time, knowing that he would incur the eternal sentence of fire. On the contrary, he would take every means to control himself and to adorn himself in virtue so that he might obtain the good gifts of God and escape the punishments. Um, uh, Section 21, we we have been taught that only they may aim at immortality who have lived a holy and virtuous life near to God. We believe that they who live wickedly and do not repent will be punished in everlasting fire. Section 52 from his first apology. Jesus shall come from heaven in glory with his angelic host when he shall raise the bodies of all men who ever lived. Then he will clothe the worthy in immortality, but the wicked clothed in eternal sensibility he will commit to the eternal fire along with the evil demons. From the martyrdom of Polycarp, uh, about 155 A.D., 
quote, fixing their minds on the grace of Christ, the martyrs despised worldly tortures and purchased eternal life with but a single hour. To them, the fire of their cruel tortures was cold. They kept before their eyes their escape from the eternal unquenchable fire. Uh, Mathetes to Diognetus, uh, AD 160, section 10, 7. Here's what it says. When you know what is the true life, that of heaven, when you despise the merely apparent death, which is temporal, when you fear the death, which is real and which is reserved for those who will be condemned to the everlasting fire, the fire which will punish even to the end those who are delivered to it, then you will condemn the deceit and the error of the world. Theophilus of Antioch, uh, of Antioch, AD 181. You notice all of these are, well, um, written long before Constantine, give studious attention to the prophetic writings, the Bible. They will lead you on a clear path to escape the eternal punishments and to obtain the eternal good things of God. God will examine everything and will judge justly, granting recompense to each according to merit. To those who seek immortality by patient exercise of good works, he will give everlasting life, joy, peace, rest, and all good things. For the unbelievers and the contemptuous, and for those who do not submit to the truth but assent to iniquity, they will have been involved in adulteries and fornications and homosexualities and avarice and in lawless idolatries. There will be wrath and indignation, tribulation and anguish, and in the end, such men as these will be detained in everlasting fire. Irenaeus, in his book Against Heresies, written about AD 189, writes, God will send the spiritual forces of wickedness and the angels who transgressed and became apostates and the impious, unjust, lawless, and blasphemous among men into everlasting Fire. Another section from uh, uh, Irenaeus's work. The penalty increases for those who do not believe the word of God and despise his coming. It is not merely temporal, but it is eternal. To whomever the Lord shall say, depart from me, accord, uh, cursed ones, into the everlasting fire, they will be damned forever. Tertullian, in his apology, writes, after the present age is ended, he will judge his worshipers for a reward of eternal life in the godless for a fire equally perpetual and unending. They will, the entire race of men, be restored to receive its, its just deserts according to what it has merited in this period of good and evil, and thereafter to have these paid out in an immeasurable and un unending eternity. Then there will be neither death again nor resurrection again, but we shall be always the same as we are now without changing. The worshipers of God shall always be with God, clothed in proper substance of eternity, but the godless and those who have not turned wholly to God will be punished in fire, equally unending, and they shall have, from the very nature of this fire, divine as it were, a supply of incorruptibility. Hippolytus against the Greeks. He writes, standing before Christ's judgment, all of them, men and angels and demons, crying out in one voice shall say, just is your judgment, and the righteousness of that cry will be apparent in the recompense made to each. To those who have done well, everlasting enjoyment shall be given, while to the lovers of evil shall be given eternal punishment. The unquenchable and unending fire awaits these latter, and a certain fiery worm which does not die and which does not waste the body, but continually bursts forth from the body with unceasing pain. No sleep will give, be given to them. No rest, no night will soothe them. No death will deliver them from their punishment. No appeal of interceding friends will profit them.
yeah, you kind of get the idea here. Um, I could go on quoting the church fathers to this effect. But the point is, is that what Adam Hushka just said, that, oh, you know, er, the first four centuries of Christianity, uh, universalism was like, yeah, you know, every, and then Constantine came along. That is, that is just patently false. And there's a real simple reason for that, by the way. The real simple reason is this, is that Scripture clearly, unambiguously teaches hell is eternal conscious torment. This is what Scripture says. And so what Adam Hushka is doing in this sermon is literally, um, I mean, it's criminal. It's criminal because he, oh, people have opinions. We're just going to provoke thought and have people ask questions. And, you know, and, you know and, and if this is what you think, and then he throws in a bunch of data that isn't even true, and he's not even opening up a Bible to explain what Scripture says about this. Jesus said, the righteous go to eternal life. The others, they go to eternal punishment. That's what Jesus said. You got a better opinion than Jesus? I don't think so. We continue. What universalism says is that ultimately God's mercy and his desire for everyone to walk in relationship with him, with this, which the scriptures are clear on, that it trumps a person's free will. And see, one of the ironies of the universalist view is you have to be of kind of a determinist or, or, or less we call it a Calvinist bent. Because ultimately what universalism is saying is, is you have people... Yeah, you Calvinists out there, who knew? You guys were a bunch of universalists. People's free will and God's will, and to me this is somewhat ironic, but what universalism, really the way it works out practically, is it's saying God's mercy has more weight, God's will and his desires for people has more weight than their desires for themselves. Now one of the things you have to consider on this one and I'm not saying this persuasively, I just think it's honest, uh, is that if this is where you fall, then you also have to reconcile the fact that Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and the worst of the worst are also in God's eternal presence. Now, maybe none of those three appeal to you. Here's a fourth. This is the wordiest. Uh, do you believe that God judges a person on the basis of what that person heard or the light they've received so that some will be in heaven even if they've never heard the name of Christ? Now, this, this would be what some would call the inclusivist view. And what the inclusivist view says, uh, you've, you've, you've heard it probably in, maybe in different ways. Some would say you can know Jesus without knowing his name. That's what they're referring to. Uh, some have said, uh, like, it's possible. That some, I've heard one guy say that everybody who can handle being in heaven will be in heaven. That's another way to say it. But the big thing here is that the inclusivists are saying that you can't possibly hold the people in North Korea who have a very strong regime to keep them from ever even hearing of the historic Christ. You can't hold them accountable to that standard. But in fact, what happens is God gives some amount of light to every person who's ever lived, and thus they are held responsible for what they know of God and his grace. Inclusivist view would say there, there's a... Yeah, um, can you show me the biblical verses that uh, explain how Jesus taught the inclusivist view or whatever, this, this view? There's a wideness to God's mercy. Now, maybe that doesn't capture things for you either. There's still a fifth option, and of course there's overlap. Yeah, just pick whichever one you like best. I mean, it's all up to you anyways. It doesn't matter what Scripture says. Just, you know, whichever one is the most appealing to you. Overlap, uh, but number five, do you believe that humans that ha have an opportunity to respond to God after death? 
Uh, this would be um, called second chance salvation or post, the post, uh, post-mortem salvation view. I think this is what Rob Bell is hinting at in his book, Love Wins, if you followed that whole deal. But it's not really his style to say what he, exactly he thinks. But here the issue, really the issue here is, do you believe that in this life is the only chance you get? Or do you believe that that chance extends infinitely? See, what the post-mortem view would say is that beyond death, you continue to get the opportunity to respond to God's grace, whether you take it or leave it. If you're fascinated by this, I would really recommend uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. It's about 90 pages long. It's all fiction, and it's this fascinating, troubling, you'll throw it across the room kind of study. And I I think he, too, is kind of hinting at a post-mortem sort of view. Now, the first five... Uh, they have... Yeah, I want to make a point here. Uh, scripture is actually clear on this, too. Um, it, it's not like it's not clear at all. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is what we're going to be looking at. Verse 27. See if this uh, this view holds up to this passage of Scripture. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for them. Yeah, so uh, it doesn't matter what what pious-sounding alternatives to hell somebody has come up with, and it doesn't matter how much they've meditated on God's grace, God's Word, and Jesus clearly teaches eternal punishment. But uh, Adam Hushka here is not actually uh, preaching God's word. He's given us, well, a, you know, a questionnaire, you know, a series of questions that he got from Scott McKnight, who is pretty much in league with McLaren and the Emergence. We continue. Though, of course, this is the way things work. Christians argue about, well, that's not Christian. Well, yeah, it is. No, it isn't. The first five are, are they fall within the Christian spectrum. Yeah, no, they don't. Um that's like saying, yeah, listen, God just said, pick one of five different beliefs regarding, you know, eternal judgment. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and they're all Christian. Yeah. No, that's not what Scripture says at all. Obviously, not everyone would agree with each, all five of them, but they're, they're, they're distinctly Christian in some sense. There's one. No, they're not. One is true and the others are false. One more option. And, and, and it's, it's outside of that. Number six says this, do you believe that all religions ultimately lead to God, and do you think that all are adequate for salvation? Now, this, of course, would would be the pluralist view. And the pluralist view would say that all religions are ultimately leading to the same God, and thus they're all leading to heaven. And really, pluralism, if we're to be honest, from a scholarly standpoint, they don't talk much about hell because they don't believe in hell, and, 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 and thus it doesn't really make any sense to develop ideas around a place you don't exist. I saw a bumper sticker recently, which sparked good conversation in our car, that, that the bumper sticker said, I'm going to hell according to every religion. And I thought, well, that's cute. But, <laughs> but it's actually intellectually, like, no matter what you believe, it doesn't make sense because not all, not all spiritualities even believe in hell. So, so there's that. And I think the big question here is, like, why does it matter? Because you're like me, you, you, you don't have theological problems, you have life problems, right? Like we, 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 don't, we don't need answers to, to pass a test, we need answers to, to pass a life and to thrive. And I had, yeah, who cares about doctrine? We've got a life to live. I had an interaction with a friend several, a couple months ago now, uh, that for me, and I didn't realize it at the time, kind of 
encapsulated this whole conversation for me. It was a Tuesday afternoon. I got a text from a friend. This is a person who in the last couple of years has started following Jesus with us here at Narrate. She comes from a very mixed spiritual background. It's been really fun to watch her grow and thrive. And the text gave me some information, which I can't, it was, it was short, but I can't give it to you as short as the text. Basically what she said is, hey, Adam, could we meet this week? Because um, an individual in my family has died and I've been asked to do their funeral. Now, I knew the individual, and I knew the story. Uh, the story of this individual, and I've asked her permission to allude to this, was that this was, a, this was a, a, a man, a nephew of hers, a father in her family, not, you know what I mean? He was a son. He was a grandson. And years ago, he, he had committed some, dare I say, pretty heinous crimes and was, and was paying for them. And quite honestly, the best they could tell had never really actually ever shown any remorse for those crimes. And as if that weren't complicated enough, he committed suicide, and now she was being asked to conduct his funeral. See, her story is like some of yours where uh, she started following Jesus, and now she's— And of course she said, listen, that's the job of a pastor, and women, according to Scripture, cannot be pastors. She's like the go-to person in the family to pray. You know that, like— Hey, someone should pray before Thanksgiving. Will you pray? That, that, that kind of deal. Will you do the funeral? And when I read it, I, I mean, it kind of took my breath away. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I've been doing this for 15 years. This is a harder assignment than any assignment I've ever been given. Because, of course, the commission is stand in front of a group of people who, who knew him and knew the background and knew the story, who are of mixed opinion spiritually, and somehow honor and celebrate his life, while at the same time not saying things that everybody in the room knows is true, while at the same time have, having something intelligent to say about his eternal destiny. And as we sat down and worked it out, and listen, this was, for me, a conversation thing, not, not, not this like, boo, this is easy. There, there were a few things I settled on. And I suppose if you pushed me in a corner, th- this is, I guess, the way I settle on the hell conversation. And it's first and foremost, and this is kind of the way even she worked through the funeral, to say, aren't there things that we know and things we don't? Uh, <laughs> so he's going to settle on this by basically asking a question. Isn't that what the devil did in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say? Adam, open up your Bible. Read what Jesus said. Even as Christ followers, aren't there things that we, we, we can claim to know? We still believe them, but we can, we can cling to them. But aren't there things we don't? Like, we, we know some things about God, especially if we're claiming Christ, don't we? Like, we know his grace is vast. We know that it's, like, scandalously unpredictable. Yeah, we do. And how do we know that? We know that from biblical texts. Maybe a good thing for you to do in your chair time over the next couple of weeks is read through the Gospel of Mark or one of the other Gospels and just remind yourself of the types of people who made up Jesus' followers and friends or disciples. Once you read the Gospel of Matthew and ask yourself this question, what did Jesus believe regarding the afterlife, regarding judgment, regarding God's wrath? That he didn't go to Carroll College and go, hey, let's talk to all the valedictorians. It's more akin to he went to the Lewis and Clark County Jail and went, hey, anybody want to change the world with me? There were these people of very salty backgrounds. Like, like one of them um, that comes to mind for me is Mary Magdalene, who was this instrumental force in the early church, the first person to ever, as far as I can tell, interact with the resurrected Christ. And yet in the book of Luke, we're told 
how her story and where her story began. Uh, In Luke chapter 8, verse 2, it says, The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary. So notice he goes to biblical texts to talk about the grace of Christ, but he's not going to any biblical text to talk about the doctrine of hell. Called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Now listen, you you might go like, well, that's a metaphor. I I, I don't know what you believe there. I, I think it's literal, but whatever. But even if you think it's metaphor, like, what does is, what is seven demons came out of tell you about her background? Kind of had a story, don't you think? Had some stuff, made some decisions, let some stuff into her heart. There was some major psychotherapy needed, if you know what I mean. And yet Jesus called her one Yeah, of- Jesus didn't perform psychotherapy on her. He exercised the demons and forgave her sins. One of his closest confidants. There's another guy who, if he were alive today, like he would be cellmates with Bernie Madoff, among the worst of white-collar workers. His name was Zacchaeus. And listen to the way Zacchaeus, listen to what he did after he responded to Jesus' grace. He says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. Now, how many of you, when you had your moment of salvation, went like, jeez, I owe some people like four times. Like, I'm a thief. This guy was one of Jesus' friends. Peter, who we celebrate as the guy. Let's remind ourselves that he was the coward in the text. Like, you go looking for the the, the biggest weakling in the New Testament, you're going to find Peter. It was Jesus, how you you use Jesus to explain Peter's outcome, not not Peter. Over and over and over again, and it raises this question, doesn't it? Is, do, 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 we, do we explain who made up Jesus' followers by saying he's soft towards sin? Or do we explain it by going, hey, 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 be careful about who you assume fits inside of God's grace and who he doesn't. Yeah, see, that's the thing is that what did they all have in common? They were penitent believers in Jesus Christ. They had their sins forgiven. They trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. And they were declared righteous. So why, why are you not seeing that? You know, well, just look, Jesus hung out with some seedy people, so don't say who can be outside of the grace of Christ. (sighs) Scripture makes it very clear that if you do not believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, you do not believe that he is the Messiah, and you do not trust in him, then you remain under the wrath of God. And this is a biblical text that you can go to on this. John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has, presently, eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's what Scripture says. But Adam isn't interested in exegetically walking through the passages that talk about this. He'll, ta- he'll allude to passages that reference grace and somehow God is forgiving, and he is, but he hasn't read a single passage of Scripture that pertains to what Jesus said regarding eternal damnation. Let's just be honest. We stand in front of a, a funeral and go, hey, let's just be clear on this. The guy qualified if he wanted to qualify. Another way to say it is we, we know that God is 100% grace and 100% truth, don't we? 
what does that mean? 100% grace, 100% truth? God is both loving and just. What What's with the truth thing? Um, another passage, the uh, rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16. You have your Bible, take a look at it. We're going to look at passages because Adam Hushka is not interested in looking at passages because then everybody would know what Scripture teaches. Here's what it says. <clears throat> the um, passage we're looking at, uh, Luke 16, starting at verse 19. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Notice he doesn't have a name. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, hell. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger into water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner... <clears throat> bad things, but now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should rise from the dead. Does that sound like universalism? Does that sound like, um, you know, the other options? No, the, the, that sounds like the traditional biblical doctrine of hell. And Jesus is the one who taught it. Why didn't Adam take any time to read those passages? There's a story that we visit often. It's a story where a woman was caught in the act of adultery. She's brought to Jesus. Uh, yeah, and I would pay close attention to this. That particular story is antilegomena. It's written against. It does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, if you have a modern-day Bible... There's a note right there as you're reading it. This does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. Be very careful with this story. The, the people bringing her are trying to trap Jesus because they want him dead. And so the story is the Jewish law said that she needs to be stoned to death, like not with a bong, but with a rock. And... The culture said, you can't do that. Like Rome said, you don't have that authority anymore. And so they bring this woman to Jesus and they say, hey, uh, what do you want us to do? You're trapped is what they're saying. And Jesus, I, I've been trying to work on this myself because when he felt himself trapped, rather than offer a stupid answer, he just started playing in the dirt. Like just checks out. And eventually, uh, shouldn't surprise us, essentially what he did is he asked a question. He says, tell you what. Whoever of you is without sin, why don't you go ahead and throw the first rock? Whatcha? Right? Like, there's this game, and he's better at it. And eventually, everybody leaves. And remember Jesus? He stands up, and he says, uh, Woman, has, has no one condemned you? 
yeah, keep this in mind here. Is this a passage that addresses directly the doctrine of hell? Answer, no. This doesn't address the doctrine of hell. Why is he taking these grace passages and pitting them against the hell passages while not even reading the passages that t- tell us about hell? And she says, no one, not no one, sir. And then listen to his response. He says, not, hey, don't sweat it. It's no big deal. And not, you scoundrel. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Not, your choices don't matter. Not, your choices are the only thing that matter. This tension. And so if we, if we say God is 100% grace, we get it wrong. And if we say he's 100% truth, we, we get it wrong. There's this. God, so it's wrong to say God's 100% truth. What is this category you've come up with, Adam? Preach the texts. Tension. We also know, don't we, that God exists outside of time? Now this, for me, I can't even think of this, but my intellectual friends are always reminding me, like, God's outside of time. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Now, this is what we call a philosophical argument, not a biblical argument. Pay attention. This is how you overturn what Scripture says using philosophy and speculation. But it's true. In a sense, there's this, like, God, time works differently for God. I was reminded in this whole interaction of a time early when I was following Jesus, and I don't know whether someone had died who, by all appearances, hadn't received Christ, or someone, I don't know what the situation was, but I remember asking Fred, like, Fred, where are they? And he went, hey, Adam, you realize that, like, a split second for God is, I don't know, 500 years for us? Second Peter 3.8, Peter pulls on this, uh, this reality something that even physics today is affirming. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. And you see that? And that, what that tells me is that split second between physical life and death, it's a big chunk of time for God. Lots of conversation can happen in that time. I think it raises the question, do we know what transpires, what kind of business Jesus can do with somebody in the split second between life and death? Where in Scripture are we led to believe that Christ is going to do business with people in the split second before death? Which passage? Because the passage you quoted has nothing to do with that. It's all speculation. Why don't you go with what the Word clearly reveals. You know what else? Uh, so, so, so there's things we know and there's things we don't. I'm going to argue. And I'm going to argue to, to offer final proclamation upon anybody's eternal destiny is it's operating in a sphere that we, we, don't, we don't know everything. Now, this is true. We don't know everything and we can't see into people's hearts. God ultimately is the judge. We can reveal, we can speak his words and tell people what his word says. We know there's room for them. We don't know much beyond that. But we also know, don't we, and I think this is where it really uh, matters, we, we know that the decisions we make matter, don't we? Like, Listen, whether, whether hell is a human construct or truly a revelation of God, whether hell is eternal and conscious or temporary and unconscious, whether it's God's idea or ours, isn't the fact that, that culture, like culture and people, that, that they're all talking about some version of this and asking this question, doesn't it speak to the fact that we're all somehow aware of the fact that our choices matter, that we're accountable? 
And you go, well, yeah, but I don't, I don't even believe in God. doesn't mean your choices don't matter. Let me introduce you to a friend of mine who, who was abused by her mother, 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 and then try to tell me that your choices don't matter. Let me introduce you to this highly successful uh, business person who, who was raised by a successful business person, who was raised by a successful business person, who was raised by somebody who got up and worked hard and put in the work and try to tell me that the choices don't matter. See, I think when we move off of the academic conversation, and don't get me wrong, I think there's a place for it, but in the real life, everyday grind, isn't what this is affirming is this human sense of, wait a minute, wait a minute, our choices matter. They translate. We're accountable for them. Yeah, I mean, we might want to get the detail regarding the accountability correct because Scripture doesn't leave that with a big question mark over it. And I was working my way through uh, the... N.T. Wright's commentary on First Peter, we have those back there, and some of you I know are working. And that explains why there's so many problems here. Working through some of those as well, and actually, to be honest with you, I was working through some of my own stuff this week. I was reminded that in First Peter, Peter quotes from Psalm 34, and it's this kind of, oh, yeah, that's a good reminder. And I couldn't help but realize, like, David in Psalm 34, he's having the same conversation. Your choices matter. Listen to this in in Psalm 34. Come, my dear children, listen to me, and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. And we go, oh, that's archaic. I'm not interested. Then he says, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. Okay, now I'm listening. Like, who here doesn't want to love life and have many good days? And then listen to his advice. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Wait a minute, you mean to tell me that there's all these things like sex and alcohol and all these things you could talk to me about and you're going you're gonna to start by watch what you say about who? Your choices matter. And it seems that David would go, perhaps, perhaps no choice matters more than, than the words you use and the things you say and don't say. What's he saying? You're You're accountable. Maybe not a coincidence that, you know, a thousand years later, a rabbi in Nazareth would say, every word you say will be a topic of conversation between you and the Lord. Why? Because the reason we go to therapy and the reason uh, that, that our marriages are either good or not good, that, that the way we, our kids think about us and the way they think about how we think about them, it's, it's all centered on our words, isn't it? it? They matter. He continues, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. In other words, your virtue matters. The way you treat people, doing the right thing, even when the right thing's the hard thing, it it matters. And then he says, in ways that I think outside of context could become so grossly uh, spiritualized, he says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Well, who are they? Oh, you mean the ones... The ones who trust in Christ, they are declared righteous. That's what dikaiao means, to be justified. It means to be declared righteous. Well, who are they? Oh, you mean the ones who watch their tongue? The, the, the ones who do the right thing? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the, fa- the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. Listen, I don't know how you reconcile hell, and I don't even know how important of a question that is for you. 
well, why don't you preach to them what God's word says? You still haven't opened a single biblical text to show us what Jesus said about eternal punishment. I do know that it's important when we're in conversations with people who are really considering Jesus on a deeper level. And for me, I go, that whole deal, I don't have to resolve it. It reminds and affirms to me whatever. You don't have to resolve it? What do you do with the biblical text then? Every person I'll ever talk to already knows your choices count. They're not made in isolation. They matter. And to be a Christ follower is to come alongside a living, breathing God who says, could I, could I help you with that? Uh, no, the call of the gospel is to repent and to be forgiven. Could I remind you? Could I lead you? Can I give you some self-control that you otherwise don't have? Can I change your heart? Can I help you see that you're not just talking about a feelingless individual, but a real life that matters? Listen, I, I, I think the question that I would ask you is, is there an area of your life where, where you're really wanting to believe that you're not accountable? And What? Why don't you tell them that they're sinners in need of a savior? And what happens if you continue to live that way? And what happens if you step into this idea that there is a God who is for you, not against you, and who eagerly desires to help you lead what is ultimately your life? I'd like to pray for you. Done. Wow, what a miserable sermon. I mean, the guy didn't answer any questions. Uh, here's five possibilities, all within the visible spectrum of Christianity. They all have, you know, hey, you know, and I'm not going to answer this question for you, but uh, isn't it just important if you think about it that, you know, that, you know, there's some kind of accountability? And, you know, and if you're going to talk about accountability, don't you think you would want to talk about a crucified and risen Savior who bled and died for their sins? Wow. Unbelievable. Tragic. They're not being called to repent and to be forgiven. And they're not being warned about the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. <laughs> If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.